From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. He plays Fortnite. He plays Fortnite. Oh yeah, he does. Nine-year-old boys play Fortnite, I know Oh, (laughs) six-year-old boys play Fortnite, I'm telling you. It was one of those magical sort of broadcasting moments, Claire, you know, like you're sitting there, it's a beautiful summer's evening, you look out and there he is. A single pair of jeans uses about 3,781 litres of water just to make it. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, how soon should you allow yourself to be manipulated into giving your child a phone? Tributes to the late musician Seamus Begley and how online consumption has led to a Kardashian-esque explosion in overconsumption. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's not sure whether this watch strap matches these shoes. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Turberty show were... Well, not your run-of-the-mill newsings, because the show was coming live from Centre Parks in County Longford. As is the way of things when the show is on the road, Ryan details the travels and the meets and the greets, including, in this case, artworks. Ballyman was really lovely, and actually there was a big statue of a grey squirrel. The the Squirminator, somebody described it as on Instagram, and it is the Terminator grey squirrel just outside the library, beside a statue to uh, Oliver Goldsmith. And it is, uh, I didn't quite understand what the point of it was, other than being a kind of mad bit of art. But thanks to uh, Mary Fleming, who got in touch with me on Instagram, to tell me that uh, the grey squirrels were introduced into Ireland in 1911. Six pairs released into Castle Forbes in County Longford. And the animal, they thrived and they spread to surrounding counties and the due to the resurgence of pine martens red squirrels are making a comeback but the grey squirrels were too heavy and easy easier for the pine martin to catch and essentially this is where it all started in in county longford essentially and uh, phil atkinson created the sculpture of the terminator squirrel in ballyman things we didn't expect we to be talking about on a tuesday morning in the chip van in centre parks but the, this is the this is the joy of getting out of uh, leaving planet montrosia and then heading out into the real world to meet real people. It's so it's so nice. Uh, we were in the car park yesterday because we came down to this to lovely light. There's a lovely light show, light walks around here. And we met uh, Steve and Jer Bannon, who are uh, here in Centre Parks with 12 of their family celebrating 50 years of marriage. And whatever they're doing, they need to keep doing because they look like they might be celebrating 30 tops. And we also want to say hello to Kay in Limerick. And um, that's from her son, Ray, who I met earlier on. Uh, Ray and his family uh, are here hanging out and Ray was sent out for on a dawn raid to get himself to get milk and um, he said to stop and say hello and say hello to his mammy uh, Kay who said go and say hello to your man and that is to say me and he did and there are a lot of umbrellas and people passing by as they make their way over to the various uh, places to stay whether there's indoor venues or there's the pool and there's the, the rapids or there's the you know, gymnasium or there's hair braiding for the girls today um, and there walks around the place and Pancake House and all sorts of uh, carry on. The place is rammed. I mean, it absolutely uh, packed out, sold out. You can't get in here. This is the, this is the nature of the place. It's extraordinarily popular. Uh, young people enjoying themselves despite the rain. They don't care. They're just uh, there's always somewhere to go and something to do. And they honestly, uh, the, the more the, as I speak to you here, their, their bikes are just going by and they say in twos and threes, and everyone's having a good time. And why not? Ryan also took a moment to remember the legendary musician Seamus Begley, who died yesterday. We had a lovely uh, encounter with Seamus uh, many years ago in 2010. 
it was July the 14th, if I remember correctly, uh, we had done a tour. We were on a tour called the Bucket and Spade Tour, travelling around Ireland. And we got to Ballybunion, and Seamus joined us. And I, I seem to remember as much the night before as the morning of, because there was a lovely uh, few few scoops and a, a lot of music um, when we were there. And we had a great time with Seamus, a lovely man. Uh, he's only 73, so my condolences to his family. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the world has lost particularly a wonderful musician uh, and a particularly charismatic person. Uh, so uh, condolences to uh, his family this morning and he will be truly missed. A lovely person, no doubt about that. More legendary Irish people will be in the spotlight tonight. Now listen, keep an eye out for the uh, the Golden Globes because uh, they, they'll be announced to uh, tonight, I think it is, and uh, the Journal reporting that, Dermot Pepper writing that the Golden Globes will attempt to stage a celebrity-filled comeback today after being rocked by recent scandals with the Banshees of Inish Aaron topping the nominations. Uh, the Globes traditionally play a vital role in starting the movie awards season, as you know. Um, so we'll see. They, they had a bit of controversy, but they're back in action. Now, I have to say... The the Banshees, there's you've got Best Screenplay nomination. It's just wonderful. Colin Farrell, Martin McDonough, uh, all nominated. Kerry Condon, of course, not to forget. And Brendan Gleeson and Barry Keoghan. There's got to be at least two or three uh, gongs in there. But I, I'm going to put a few quid, if I it, it, metaphorically, on Donald Gleeson uh, to win for the, his role in The Patient. Have you seen that yet? It, it is. He plays opposite Steve Carell. Uh, he plays a creepy, creepy client to Steve Carell's therapist. And... His, I, I just think it's a career best for Donald Gleeson. I, I would love him to win that award because he really has pulled that out of the bag and I think he really deserves it. So here's hoping. And whisking us from entertainment to bereavement of the four-legged variety. The first pet crematorium for the Limerick and Clare region has officially opened its doors, according to Kian O'Brien in the Limerick Leader. Peaceful Paws. It's a nice name, isn't it? Peaceful Paws. Uh, based in Ennis is a pet crematorium serving both Limerick and Clare, giving a co- caring and compassionate and dignified send-off to one's favourite furry friends. And they're located at Gort Road Business Park in Ennis, run by Amy and Danny Keller. And uh, they, Amy have been running a dog grooming business called, wait for it, Barkingham Palace, uh, which, of course, <laughs> is a great name. Um, but they decided that uh, she saw a requirement for a pet crematorium for the region, after clients were forced to travel elsewhere to get the pets cremated. So it's going really well. That's good. So when a pet unexpectedly dies at home, Peaceful Paws will carry out a home collection service. And the other service it's prov- is provided when pets are put to sleep at a veterinary practice and they can be arranged with the vet. And the time it takes to complete a cremation depends mostly on physical size. So 40 minutes for a small pet or a bird, maybe, to around three hours for a Labrador. So I actually never put any thought into the length of time for a crematorium for a creature, but that's what it is. And then it's time to check in on how Kate Winslet's press tour for Avatar The Way of Water is going, specifically how the big movie star helped out the novice interviewer. So what happened was this uh, young reporter, uh, Martha, from the German, uh, German TV network, uh, was interviewing her, and she got really nervous and here, let's have a little listen to how that went. Um, it's my first time. This is your first time? Yeah. Okay, well, guess what? When we do this interview, yeah. it's going to be the most amazing interview ever. Okay. And do you know why? Why? Because we've decided that it is going to be. <laughs> so we've decided right now, me and you, yeah. this is going to be a really fantastic interview. 
Okay. And you can ask me anything that you want, and you don't have to be scared. Okay, you've got this. Yeah. What a nice way to uh, deal with the the poor. She did report her sounded like she was about seven, but she was just starting out, and that is a really nice way to do it. And a classy, classy act there, Kate Winslet. Well done. Fair play, Ms. Winslet. She will give you a slot on the Today programme later. What a wide-ranging selection of newsings on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show. It seems such a shame to bring it to an end, but bring it to an end, we shall. Now, there comes a time in every modern parent's life when they face a dilemma. When should my child have a phone? Often this dilemma is introduced by the child themselves, telling you that everyone else has one. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Kate Winslet, I told you she'd be back, articulated many parents' uncertainties about what phones mean for their children. But I do definitely feel that the world of social media is frightening to parents because we don't really know what's there. We don't know how our children are using it. We don't know the effects that it's really having on them. We don't know really what's going on in their friendship groups anymore because so much of it is actually built on phones, inside phones. This world that just, you can burrow deeper and deeper into it and it becomes darker and trickier and much, much harder for children to navigate. And I think because people, young children are having phones at a much earlier age, they're able to access things that emotionally they're just not equipped or sophisticated enough to know how to process. Okay, so Kate Winslet wasn't actually on today with Claire Byrne, but our host used the clip you've just heard to illustrate the problem and then turned to her guest, Mary McCarthy, columnist with the Irish Independent, who confessed to have recently given her 12-year-old a phone for Christmas. So listen, I, I said earlier that you regret giving your 12-year-old a phone. Is that is that right? Is that fully right? Okay, regret is probably a strong word because mm-hmm. the genie's out of the bottle on this now. There's no going back. Like how kids react, how they interact with each other has completely changed to how we did, you know. So while I don't regret it because I feel it's inevitable, I do feel that there's a lack of awareness amongst parents how these phones are changing our kids and how they are living their lives. Mm-hmm. Have you a rule in your house about when you're allowed to have a phone? So we did have a rule and that was scuppered. So uh, my eldest son, he's 14 now, so he got his phone at the end of sixth class. It was a graduation present. So that was, you know, we thought we'd set the, the you know, this is what the bar, this, yeah. is how, this is how it's going to roll. But this year now... Um, my daughter is in sixth class, all her friends, a bar one who very interestingly doesn't want a phone, which I think is very admirable. But the rest of them, they all had phones. So, I mean, it was quite, the lobbying was quite intense. And there's also that little voice at the back of your head as a parent. Like, I'm very lucky in our school, there's no bullying at all. But I have heard really, really quite disturbing stories from other parents in other schools about how kids are getting left out because mm-hmm. they're not being included, they don't have a phone, you know, there's these groups, these WhatsApp groups set up without them. So you do, I did, like, we did sit down and go, okay, well, look, you know. So you felt that you had to allow your daughter to have a phone? A hundred percent, yeah. And where do your, where does your regret lie? I think, well, there is now a lot you can do to mitigate their, like, their excessive phone use. So, for instance, we have Google Family Link, so that can, we put, she has a two-hour limit and we can see, we can block certain apps, so she can't join TikTok or Instagram until next year when she's 13. So I think where my unease lies is how it's changing their brains, how they 
they're constantly on them, you know. I mean, even though they only have two hours, they can, they're checking them all the time. And if you research this, it's quite interesting because there is varied research. Some research shows, shows a positive benefit of social media. And then, like, North, there was research last week from North Carolina University that showed kids who check their phones a lot, uh, their social media updates, they actually, their brain forms differently. So they're more sensitive to how their peers Perceive them. Perceive them, exactly. And, and you, you've yeah. set a two-hour limit for her on the phone, have you? So we have, she's a two-hour limit on the weekdays. Mm-hmm. And then the weekends, she's three hours. And she's got two devices, she's got a laptop as well. So between, I think it's three hours weekdays uh, between the two of them. And how does she feel about not being allowed to have a TikTok or um, Instagram account? Okay, now again, very lucky in our school because there's very few who have it. So really lucky. So at the moment it's not a problem. Although she's lobbying for extra time, she feels it's unfair that she has this time limit because a lot of her friends, they wouldn't have a time limit. It, like the phone would turn off at nine, let's say, but they, they'd be able to use it. Uh, so she's not happy with that. But the whole TikTok thing is actually thankfully, but we are lucky, Claire. I mean, I have friends with other schools and they've had TikTok accounts since you know, the kids have been 10, 11. Mm-hmm. And so, what, what is she doing or what are her friend group doing? They're using WhatsApp, obviously, to message each other. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we can see the breakdown of what the kids, what they all do, right? So the nine-year-old, he's he actually wrote it down here because so, some of these games, I, like I don't even, you know. He doesn't have a phone. You have a nine-year-old boy. Oh, no, he doesn't no. have a phone, okay. no, but he has a laptop. So what he does is uh, he plays Roadrunner, Battle Royale, Candy Crush. Oh no, she plays Candy Crush. Sorry, he doesn't play because I think that's an He plays Fortnite. He plays Fortnite. Oh yeah, he does. Nine-year-old boys play Fortnite. I know Oh, this. six-year-old <laughs> boys play Fortnite. I'm telling you. Like, by the time they get to 12, which is when they're supposed to be allowed to play Fortnite, it's like it's past They've there. Moved you know, on. it's on to Grand Theft Auto. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, she is mainly chatting to her friends and listening to music. And is that on Snapchat or is it on WhatsApp? That's on WhatsApp. WhatsApp okay. is huge. And then she watches YouTube videos as well. Okay. And what sort of controls have you put in place, if any, on, on the YouTube watching? Do you monitor that? Um, it's difficult. Yeah. No, you can't actually, on this Google link thing, you can't see what they're watching, but you can see what time they spend. And I know there is something you can you can put something on it. I just don't know enough about it. Yeah, you can control mature videos, but they tell you when you're clicking on that control device that it's not going to catch everything. Um, Just some messages that are coming in, Mary, as we're chatting. When did it become a thing that 12 year olds need phones because they're going to secondary school? No, your daughter uh, isn't going into secondary school. She's in sixth class. Why aren't we as parents not prepared to put a stop to this? Mm, Yeah. I do agree with that caller. I like But the ship had sailed because everybody apart from one person in her class had a phone. Oh, the ship, the genie is out. Like Claire, it's, the kids are just, like when you think how we grew up, like the smartphone, I think it's 2007. So since, you know, since the smartphone has mm-hmm. come in, like it, it's just, it's a different way. I can remember when I was 14, my dad got a payphone into the house because like there's three girls, we were on the phone constantly. So that has changed as in connecting with your peers, wanting to connect with them constantly. That is still the same, but now it's done by phone and there's a lot that parents can't see. So when that person says, why aren't we as parents not prepared to put a stop to this? Do you think it's too late for that to happen or can we do anything at this stage to delay this? I think it's probably too late. I think now what we need to do is move on to the second stage, which is becoming more aware of how it's changing them. I mean, the research again is mixed, but 
a lot of research is showing a negative link and then you've got some research is showing that there is a positive link. Like I, uh, for this article I wrote last week for the Irish Independent, I talked to Amy Orban. She's an experimental psychologist in Cambridge and I expected her, she's done loads of research on mental health with adolescents and phone use and I expected her to be unequivocal. Yes, it's terrible. But she was saying, look, we can't actually, there, there, there is an increase in mental health illness in young kids and it has coincided with the rise of the smartphone, but you can't, make that direct link because somebody is quite positive so but I mean there is a lot of negative Mary McCarthy columnist with the Irish Independent while still in primary school on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne The Golden Globes kickstart award season tonight and Ireland's own Banshees of Inish leads the pack with eight nominations Ray Darcy spoke this afternoon to one of the cast of the film John Kenny Best screenplay, best performance uh, by Colin Farrell in the leading role and then um, uh, Brendan Leeson's supporting role, uh, 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 Kerry Condon in a supporting role, Barry Keoghan in a supporting role um, and, and loads, loads of them. And, and, and you're in it. And it's, it's, I only got to see it over Christmas, John, and yeah. I, lo- I loved yeah. it. I loved it. And I don't yeah. know, in, in listening to you, chatting to you and Pat, I didn't realise how much you were in it, you were going to be in it because you were in it a lot. Ah, we're hanging around a bit. I think I, I was anyway. But look, it was great. It was just great to be part of something. I mean, being part of something that Martin McDonough has written, and then to be part of something that Martin McDonough has written and directed for me is just like, well, that's it. Like, I mean, I'm done now. You know, I mean, it really, really meant that much to me because I absolutely love and adore. And I have everything he's ever done, and never, you know what I mean. So yeah. it was such an honour, and um, it was it was it was a great it was a great gig, and a hard gig. Like because usual, you know. I mean, these things are you know long the usual crack. It's not an easy. La- I don't do too much film work, but you know, I envy people, or I, admi- I must say, I admire them, people that do do it because it, it's a hard graft, you know, long hours, and and I'm just thinking tonight, Ray. Like I mean. All those people that helped out the community up in Ackle and the community up in Inishmoor. Yeah. I mean, they were as much involved in that film as I was, like, you know. So I hope tonight as well for them, it's it's a great occasion that, you know, they gave so much to that film of their time and they all helped out and they were all involved. And some way or another, you know, people were helping it. It became, and I think Martin went out of his way to kind of reach out into the community and make sure that people from the community were involved in in very in, in a lot of different ways. So, mm. um, so, so yeah, it's a great a great thing, you know. Back to you for a minute. Yeah. So, so getting that call, yeah. and would he yeah. would in in that situation? Do you get a call from an agent type person, or do you get a call from Martin McDonough? Well, I think Martin had emailed me. Well, I right. don't have an agent, believe it. Or not. I don't even know how I'm. I don't have an it. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't be in the business of it at all. I mean, I don't even have a phone line, like, for God's sake. Like, you know? I mean, will you give that woman back her phone there, John? I mean, yeah, I will, I will. But it's a bit, I know, yeah. I know, it's just, I'm a bit of a, um, I don't know what I am. I'm, and anyway, look, yeah, and I don't, and I think that I did get a phone call from age, and, and then I got an email from Martin, just which, look at how often you get an email from the writer, director, yeah. Martin McDonough, Holly, uh, an Oscar winning man going, Great to have you on board. Mother of God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> and and, and I, I love asking this question, but, and, yeah. and so, so I apologise if, if I've asked yeah. it. Did, did you realise how special, or that it was special, or how special it was when you were in the middle of it? 
Oh, look, I, yeah, I think I must, I have an awful bias because I just love everything that he's yeah. ever done or ever written. I mean, believe it or not, I would go to bed and I'd take down the plays. I'd take down the cripple. And, uh, you know, I'll take down um, God, uh, the Lonesome West. I'll take down the... And I'll read them. Right. i reread them, you know. I mean, I find great joy in them, you know. Yeah. Um, and I love reading them. And they bring us... You know, he's just... I mean, it's the thing that McDonough is like, you're there and you're laughing. And my God, you're laughing. It's sometimes the most tragic thing in the world. Yes, and, yeah. But what can you do sometimes? But... You know, God, we're 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 funny. We're, we're we're kind of complex human beings, you know. So like, that's how much it meant to me. Like when when I got that, and as I was saying, obviously some of that they're like, you do realize, but sometimes you don't. It was like sometimes like doing the Father Ted's. Did we know? Did any of us ever know that maybe twenty five years later, or is it thirty years later, Ray, that these pieces that have been there recorded are still being shown and still being watched religiously. And they've made such, I suppose, an impact yes, on comedy. Yes, yeah, no, you, and you wouldn't realise that. And you don't know. Well, you have no way of knowing. You have no way of knowing. No, and sometimes you look at the script and you're saying, like, well, you're looking over at the writer thinking, second year, just this isn't <laughs> going to work at all. But you're, who knows, like, you know? Yeah. As I said, I did. But you, you, you never know. I mean, if every, if anyone knew the form that are there was the form that, well, then, that'll blow everything out of the water. Exactly. Yeah, we have a lovely little yeah. bit of audio here. Um so yeah. you, yourself and Pat Rinn are always in the bar. And and at oh, this yeah. at this stage, uh Brendan Leeson's character uh, has said to Colin Farrell's character that uh, he's dull. And and I'm not giving yeah. too much away there, he's dull. And yeah, if yeah. he doesn't stop talking to him, he's gonna remove a finger for every time he talks to him. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah. and so this is this is Pauly Colin Farrell talking to you and Pat Short about about what has just happened. Just because he thinks you're dull, that's going overboard. Who told you about the dull? Well, I overheard it. Like, what was I supposed to do? I don't think you're dull. And she, if I was to cut something off myself for every dull person that came in here, I, I'd only have my head left. Do you think I'm dull, Jerry? No. That said. I did think the two of ye always made a funny pairing, like. No, we didn't. Yeah, you did. You did. Obviously you did. Because now he'd rather maim himself than talk to you. <laughs> John Kenny in that clip from The Banshees of Inishirin. John was talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon ahead of the Golden Globes tonight. Fingers crossed. Back in Centre Park's meantime, Ryan was joined in the chip van by Uruemu Adajimni, Fianna Fáil councillor and former mayor of Longford. You are the uh, the first migrant, first African, first black female to become a mayor in Ireland. That is a lot of firsts. So let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about yourself and your family and where it all began. Yes, Ryan. Um, I grew up in a city called Wari in Delta State in Nigeria. I am second of seven siblings, five girls and two boys. Uh, raised with a lot of love and care from our uh, very attentive parents. Um, I was raised Catholic, so that's uh, kind of the start of my relationship with Ireland, so to speak. Um, hadn't an intention of ever leaving the shores of Nigeria uh, growing up. Uh, my intention was to, you know, 
grow up, get married, raise a family and live it. You went to school, you went to boarding school there? I went to boarding school. I went to, um, I had my third level education. My first degree was in industrial mathematics in Nigeria. I graduated with a a 2-1 and upper second class uh, degree in mathematics. Yeah, Zooks, okay. Uh, (laughs) And then departing Nigeria, why and why Ireland? Yes, so um, shortly after graduation, I got married, started, you know, looking forward to the next chapter sure. of my life. And uh, I had uh, some uh, family's uh, circumstances, a change in my family circumstances, okay. and that led me to make the difficult decision to emigrate. It's, it's a huge task, emigrating, leaving family, leaving loved ones, leaving, you know, everything you know yeah. to an absolutely foreign place. I said I had a relationship with Ireland. I was, uh, we had Irish priest in my boarding school Did where I, I went to school, and um, I actually went to another school in my uh, local community and we had nuns who ran the school as well so very much similar to the Irish way of life is what I would have experienced in Nigeria and I think that helped me to uh, integrate a lot quicker within the uh, the Longford community. So I came to Ireland in 2003, had all of my children in Mullingar Hospital. Did you? So, yeah, very, Longford is very dear to me and yeah. Mullingar indeed. Uh, my children are very grown now, my my youngest is 13 and my oldest will be 20 in two months' time. And so I have flourished in, in, in Ireland. And since coming to Ireland, I've worked for uh, almost all of the 20 years, about 18 of the 20 years in a bank and then in a manufacturing company and then in the Department of Health before um, I joined Public Life as a local representative. OK, OK, OK. Let's let's uh, alight on some of the things you've been saying there because it's a great CV. It's an intriguing CV. And, and with, when you got to Ireland, I want to just go back a few steps uh, to find out why you ended or how you ended up in Longford of all the counties and all the places. Yeah, I was actually thinking of that and I think at this point it's fair to say that Longford chose me because um, I had um, uh, family friends in Longford and that's how I, I settled here as my first stop. Longford was my first stop yes. and my last stop yes, here. Yes. And yeah, and so I haven't had any reason to live Longford. I got a job in Longford. I made friends quickly in Longford with uh, with Nigerians, with Africans, with the uh, native Irish. Indeed, with uh, I have lots of Polish friends. My best friend is Romanian, yeah. so um, I've kind of really settled in, in Longford, and uh, it has been a great place to raise my kids as well. Somebody was saying to me on Instagram that uh, look out for the great uh, Brazilian population around the place. I saw a, a, a Brazilian food shop as well. You know, so it it seems to be very. Uh, diverse in terms of population in this part of the world, which is probably a very healthy thing. And I want to talk about that also in a few minutes' time. But um, it's, as you're speaking about, you know, leaving the, the, your, your original home to come to Ireland, you know, you, you think we have more in common with, with the migrant experience historically. I mean, we're not too far away from the Strokestown Famine Museum where you know, really was the beginning of the Irish story to Ellis Island in America and Grosseal in, in Canada and all, all, you know, we're Australian and so forth. So we, we, we should understand stories like yours a yeah. lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I like I, I think as well, it depends on your individual circumstances. Indeed, people sure. that have uh, have families that have emigrated and people that have lived abroad for a while are more, I find, um, are more um, empathetic yeah. towards the, the plight of people that find themselves uh, leaving the country for whatever reason. And so um, I know there's a, there's a strain on infrastructure and I think that leads to a lot of unrest and, um, and you know, it's 
it's it's distressing or disheartening to see what's going on in Ballymun and what went on in the East Wall. And the, 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 you know, as you say, Ballymun, because that's in the news overnight. Um, the most distressing thing, part of that story, was the little girl who said to, who asked her her parents, um, are, "Are they going to shoot us?" Uh, God knows what they've come from in the first instance, but the menace of that and and the the lack of thought for children that that uh, there's one thing to protest, of course, is that we live in a democracy, but the thought for young children who might be in the building, let alone anyone else, and their thoughts, it, it's it's a little depressing, let's face it. Yeah, it is, it is and it's so important for us to mind ourselves and mind our mental health because once you cross a threshold there is like, you you lose all sense of reality and unless people are actually intent on being evil and don't care you know, the reaction to what they're giving out, which there are very few of those people, the people that are real, really struggling and they get sucked into whatever is going on around them, unfortunately, so it's so important, I would urge people to just be mindful of their mental health to ensure that you know they're looking after themselves so they don't get you know exposed to these um negative beings that uh, that are around that can manipulate uh, them and and you know capitalize on yeah. their on their uh, situation th- th- this seems to be a pattern here now i think is that uh, you know, a, a suggestion to open up some class of accommodation facility for migrants and refugees. Uh, and there are people in certain communities who sincerely believe that it's not fair to bring more people into the community because it's just not there. There's no rooms in the classes, no room for in the in the GP's office. Like there's a, a very sincere, they, they care for the potential visitors and fellow citizens because they don't want them to suffer anymore. And then, of course, there are people who just don't want anyone new in the community. That's another story. And then there's the far right, which is tiny. I barely want to give them the oxygen. But but when that all conflates, it can. I think that's what gets ugly. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And and I would I would encourage like the genuine protesters, like if you want change at the, the point where um, people are being housed is not where you protest if you want real change at Leinster House and my colleagues are going to kill me No but you're saying go to Leinster House go to Leinster don't House go to the, somebody's home Exactly, if you want change, if you want the infrastructure that your community needs, indeed I'm fighting for infrastructure for Longford all the time because Longford is the fastest growing county in Ireland and that has implication on infrastructure, on the services that we can provide as a council mm. for the community so it's, it's up to us um, uh, public representatives to push for this additional infrastructure. Indeed, we're getting some in for Longford, which is great, but we always keep pushing for more, and I would encourage the public reps in those areas to push for infrastructure, to placate the, the people in the uh, in the community, so that, you know, these influx of people don't have an impact on, you know, the infrastructure that is, you know, under strain, let's be honest. A- a- like anyway. We've had a significant increase in population in Ireland, so we need to be quicker in increasing, you know, the support and the services in the community so that, you know, there'll be fewer people that can be manipulated by these far-right far cohorts. Yuremi, uh, I said at the beginning of our of our conversation that you were the first, more uh, the, the, the most recent Lord Mayor uh, uh, of Longford. How did you get into politics in, in, in Longford? Totally, by accident, really? yes. Um, I would have been exposed to the political scene. My father was uh, a very active politician back uh-huh. in Nigeria and he's he's retired now and uh, he's kind of a backseat uh, politician now. So I would have been exposed to, I've had an interest in, you know, in current affairs, in government. Yes. And so when I came to Ireland, I knew, you know, it was important to perform my civic duty. So I would have voted from voting, from not knowing who I was uh, 
I was voting for on the ballot to, you know, being able to identify local representatives. And, uh, you know, so in 2016, when I was invited to join Fianna Fáil, I, I obliged. I would also be a, a big community activist as well. So yeah. I'd be very involved in different activities from, you know, from the uh, St. Mel's Parish as well, which uh, which I, I belong. I'm on the pastoral, the pastoral council to being the integration officer in Longford Slashers GAA. And congratulations to the ladies on getting the all Ireland uh, serious congratulations yes and uh, and um, I would have been a Covid officer in uh, Longford Rugby as well oh, I love people like you you're just <laughs> you're just into it you want yes. to get involved you believe in public service you you, you you want to make your presence felt for all the right reasons so that's great and and you got eventually you I think you were co-opted onto the council yes uh, and then to be made mayor tell me about how that felt when uh, do, do they put the chain I presume over your uh, yes yeah, what yes. was that like oh it was just unreal and I think the it's kind of a gift public service for me is a gift that keeps on giving because uh, it was accidental so every win is just mind blowing and becoming mayor I didn't even think beyond the shores of Longford um, so to speak and you know getting the reaction the national reaction and the international oh absolutely wonderful yeah Longford has embraced me body and soul absolutely and so it's just again it's great it just shows you know what can happen when you give people a chance. That's Uruemu Adejimni, Fianna Fáil councillor and former Lord Mayor of Longford, talking to Ryan in Centre Parks this morning. Musician Seamus Begley, who died yesterday, was the subject of a tribute on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, led by musician, broadcaster and founder of Other Voices, Philip King. We're all bereft and very, very upset and very, very sad at Seamus's loss. Um, it came as a, a terrible shock to everybody, really, here on the peninsula. And we can see from the response to the music community worldwide, really, that we have lost such a hero, as we say in Irish, Paul Leach, our lore, a hero has passed on and has left us. And certainly, and condolences too to his family, who I'm sure are in deep shock today, his wife, Mary, and his children too. Yes, all of the family. Um, so sad, so sad for Mary and for his children, Brownlon and Owen and Neil and um, Maeve, um, all great musicians. And of course, he came from a dynasty of truly remarkable musicians. I mean, great, great people, hugely important people. And in the scheme of things right now, he was, you know, his family are to be seen as having, you know, a a priceless gift, which he and other members of his family shared with kindness and generosity. And I remember personally when myself and Nuala and our three triplet children came here to live over 25 years ago. Um, we were received in the Begley household uh, from by Seamus and Mary with, you know, great generosity, great hospitality and great kindness. And they were the things that marked him out, really. Mm. Um, a carrier of tradition, a great carrier of songs, um, a great carrier of the local style of accordion playing. And just in every sense... Um, a truly wonderful man, um, loved him dearly, as did 
anybody who really came into touch with him. He was inspirational, powerful, uplifting, and fantastic fun. So and, and just Phil, a, a terrible loss. And there's a lovely a story about when you were in the middle of presenting your show and you looked out the window and you spotted Seamus Begley on, on his tractor and you wondered out loud, on air, on the radio, musing to your listeners whether he'd come in and sing a song and you phoned him. <laughs> I did. And in he came and said, I'm very busy, but I'll sing you a song. It was one of those magical sort of broadcasting moments, Claire, you know, yeah. like you're sitting there. It's a beautiful summer's evening. You look out and there he is, Seamus, on the tractor and um, sort of sent him a little message. And in he came and sat down in front of us and 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 sang a song in his absolutely gloriously beautiful voice. Um we, we travelled all over the world at various different times. And I remember at one evening we were in a very large concert hall in Helsinki and he was singing a version of Broken Corrigabana in that beautiful high voice that he had uh, that seemed to come from nowhere. And it was as if the song was singing him. And of course, he was singing in Irish. He brought the Irish language to the stages of the world. Nobody in the room really understood what the words actually meant. But such was the emotion that was in his voice as he sang that many of the audience members were in tears as he sang the song. Just, and it's just something so beautiful about it. Yeah, the sheer you know. beauty of it. And you mentioned that song, Bruach na Gabonia, and we have it. And I just want to play a little piece of it now. We'll hear Seamus Begley singing. Oh, Such a beautiful, delicate voice from a big, a great big man, you know, a farmer on his tractor. Yeah, as as good a singer as I have ever heard, and we've travelled the world and with other voices and various different things, and you hear singers of all sorts, but he was one of the great singers, and he was a great carrier of songs. He was a great sharer of songs. And the thing about Seamus in his own community here, who will be grieving for him right now, was that he was a respected member of that community, both as a farmer, but also as a musician who put the rhythm under the dancer's foot. You know, he started at 14 in his father's dance hall in Mariuk, playing music for dancers. And that was his thing. And when he played, he lifted the room and, you know, made everybody just feel happy. And I mean, what price can you put on that when you're valuing something to be made feel good? Well, so and anybody what, who was ever in Seamus' company felt great. Well, from what I understand, it wasn't just the music and the singing that meant people made people feel great. I was listening to Sharon Shannon this morning on Morning Ireland talking sure. about what fun he was. Dahi O'Shea was on to me before we started the programme today saying, you know, and he had I great stories was, about yeah. Seamus uh, saying what fun he had. He was great crack. 
He was fantastic fun. He saw the humour in everything. He deconstructed things. He put things up to people. He had he was he was a rogue, as we would call him down here. He was he was absolutely full of fun. And he lightened the atmosphere of every room that he walked into. But I think when we when we come with some with some with some time to think about what his contribution is he was a change agent in terms of traditional music. He made his first record in 1973 with his sister Moira. And I always remember Moira saying to me, Far James He's a Gwelthot man. He is of this particular place. In 1992, he made a game-changing and tradition-changing record with Steve Cooney. And it was all about rhythm and it was all about song. And, you know, he then passed that on with great generosity to people like you've mentioned, to mm-hmm. people like Sharon, to people like Jim Murray and so many more. And he passed on the music with generosity and with kindness. And I think three words come to mind when we talk about Seamus. Tradition, translation and transmission. Well, he came out of the well of tradition. He translated it and he made it available to the next generation of people. Well, Philip King, fondly remembering the Kirkagoina musician Seamus Begley, who died yesterday on This Morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Human rights campaigner Peter Pringle died on New Year's Eve. He was jailed for the capital murder of two Gordhi in the 1980s, but released after 14 years when his conviction was deemed to be unsafe. On this afternoon's Live Line, Joe Duffy spoke to Pringle's widow, Sonny Jacobs. What's your reaction, Sonny, to the fact that this issue is now being brought up again? Was Peter the third killer in Balahadreen? Well, uh, I think that the man who wrote that uh, article uh, in the Examiner has been cashing in on this stance of his long time obviously without regard for the feelings and well-being of the families involved. Even now, just a little over a week since Peter's passing, mm-hmm. about kicking the person when he's down. Well, Peter isn't here to speak for himself anymore, but I am, and a lot of other people as well. And yeah. I can tell you that over the last 25 years since Peter and I have known each other, okay. he has influenced the lives of an abundance of people all in a positive way. What attracted me to Peter initially was his integrity. His de- he dedicated his life to love and healing and mm-hmm. peace and helping people. So Nick Clifford's point of view has become the best argument against death penalty that I can think of today. Because regardless of what you think about Peter's life prior to the last 25 years, yeah. the past 25 years he's helped a great many people to heal from trauma, from wrongful convictions, and all of it was done with love. So regardless of what you might have thought of him before. The mm-hmm. fact that he spent the last quarter of a century of his life helping other people is the best argument against the death penalty that I think that there is. And I'd just like to add, and thank you for letting me continue. So um, yeah. trying to sort through the details of a case is like picking at the scabs of the wounds of all the families involved, because it can never be resolved. And that's the way it is in most cases, all wrongful conviction cases. That I know of. And that's one of the reasons that a wrongful conviction haunts people for the rest of their lives. And you can have many people on to tell you about it. But the fact that the courts deemed Peter's conviction as unsafe 
and unsound. Therefore, according to the law, Peter is an innocent man. And you can't just believe in the law when it makes a decision you agree with and then not believe in the law when it makes decisions you don't agree with. I think it's sad that after more than 40 years that this man is still making a living, making an issue out of this case. Peter Pringle's conviction was overturned, and he's as innocent as anyone else. And Peter devoted his life to healing and helping other people heal from trauma and injustice. We started with each other, helping Mm -hmm. each other. And we traveled the world. We visited over 15 countries to help people understand how injustice happens and the importance of healing. So for the sake of all the families involved, for the sake of anyone who's suffered an injustice, I say it's time to put this to rest and let everyone heal. Peter always said that if you could leave this world a little better than you found it, then you would have lived a good life. And Peter certainly did that. And now, out of respect, I think the family should be given mm-hmm. the time and the space in which to heal and find comfort in the goodness that filled Peter's life and the lives of the others. And thank you, Joe, for giving me and Sonny, you you believe you've just you believe that Peter was wrongly convicted of the murder of the two Gardaí. The court said he was, therefore he. No, was. the court said he he was entitled to a retrial. No, a retrial no. was ordered. No, Joe. They said that his conviction was unsafe and unsound. Yeah, and and that's was... the main issue. So whether he or not he was entitled to a retrial, that's that's you know that. Well, obviously, they didn't try him. <laughs> they let him go. Well, so, because because at that stage, uh, a number of key witnesses, including senior Gardaí, had died. There was no possibility of a retrial in terms of the witnesses. Well, like I said, I'm not going to go over the details of it because okay. I think it's a moot point. The court's conviction should be overturned. It was overturned. There was never a new trial for whatever reason. And therefore, he has to be considered as an innocent person, according to. But do you do you believe he was wrongly convicted in the first in the first place? Absolutely. And how do you know that, Sonny? No, I just told you. No one can know anything. No one can know anything except that the court determined that he was wrongly convicted, and they overturned the conviction, and he is now to be considered an innocent man. I think to debate the details of something mm-hmm. you can never really know is a waste of time and energy. And time is very precious, as I, as I can tell you, and so is my energy. So I won't I won't do that. Mm-hmm. I'll do that to other people who have more time and energy to waste. I don't. And did you read Michael Clifford's article in The no. Examiner at the weekend? And he's been writing well, about this for a number of years. I know that. And he was even prevented from writing a book because he was slandering Peter. But the point is, I think he's wasting his time after 40 years because he should grow up and, and, and get a life. And I'm not, I did not read his article because I told you I don't waste my time in anything. There's, there's no point in what he's in, in any of it. Mm-hmm. There's just no point. It, it, it just keeps people raw and prevents them from healing. I think we'll, nobody's ever going to be able to prove anything. Therefore, we just have you believe what you believe. You know, you believe what I be, you believe, I believe what I believe. And, and everybody's entitled to believe what they believe, but I think people should be given a chance mm-hmm. to just feel and move past this and and um, be respected in whatever they do believe. But there was, I don't know whether you ever spoke to Peter about the case. It was a major case here in Ireland when the two Gardaí were murdered. 
uh, in the course of their duty. Uh, two of them were unarmed, one of them wasn't. Henry Bourne and John Morley. Um, did you ever talk to Peter about the case? No, 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 I did not. Uh, there was, when it came to legal things that were in the courts, and um, there are still things in the courts uh, because of the injustice that was done to Peter. So I think if there was not an injustice done, surely they wouldn't be debating it this long. But um, no, we didn't. We moved on. And that was the whole point. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the point of what I'm saying now. I think that um, instead of picking at the scabs mm-hmm. of the wounds of the people that, you know, lost their loved ones or whose loved ones' lives were destroyed as a result of what happened... Yeah, but do they do, do those families? I don't know where the Morley and and the Bourne families are now. They had young; they were very, very young men, young families, young children. I, I don't know where they are now. But do do they not deserve closure as well? Because um, there was also a book written by a detective, a detective Tom Connolly, who was in charge of the investigation, and he's written in incredible detail about the case. I recommend it to people if you're interested in the case. But he is adamant, as, as up to an hour ago when I spoke to him, he is adamant that Peter Pringle was the third man. And he, he proffered a new, a new suggestion to us as to why he knew, apart from the evidence that was put forward in court. So it's, the, the problem is, it's not going to go away, is it, Sonny? Unfortunately, even though you didn't know Peter at the time, you'd nothing, you weren't even, I know you, you, were, you were from the States originally and you met Peter subsequently. I, my answer to you is the same. I think that these people, with all their speculations, we can mm-hmm. never anything anymore. I think that they should have the respect and the decency mm-hmm. to get off of it and let the families heal and get on with their lives. Okay. They have good memories. They have whatever happened to them. I have whatever happened to me. I was wrongly convicted yeah, also. I know that. I know and that. Yeah. The best thing that anyone can do is have the decency to stop speculating and making a living off of off of doing so and let people just heal and get on with their lives. Sonny Jacobs, widow of Peter Pringle, who was accused of being the third of three men responsible for the killing of two Gardaí in 1980, talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, the connected 21st century world we live in means we can buy things we need with the mere tap of a virtual button on our phones. But when does buying things we need become buying stuff we don't need? And what does that mean for the planet as it gasps for breath? Claire Byrne was joined this morning to discuss this by sustainability journalist with the Sunday Times Ireland, Joe Linehan, and Mindy O'Brien, chief executive of Voice, an environmental charity. Claire asked Joe how, in the age of Kardashians, regular people measure up in terms of conspicuous consumption. It's one thing for celebrities to kind of show off these very extravagant lifestyles. Like you said, the endless pantries, all of the food colour coordinated, you know, everything in from their garden, these endless walk-in wardrobes. But now we've come to a stage where, because of social media, that's being served up as something that ordinary, everyday people should be aspiring to. And we're being suggested items that we need to buy constantly. And so suddenly we're under all of this pressure to live like that when it's completely unattainable, Mm -hmm. completely unnecessary. Really. Unnecessary, yeah. And, and Mindy, Friends of the Earth have said, haven't they, that if climate crisis is the symptom, the disease 
is overconsumption. Yes, and I think there is a disconnect between consumption and emissions. You have a lot of people out there marching for climate change, from doing something, making the government do something, but they don't link their own actions with the emissions that they uh, that they um, cause. Um, they estimate that almost fifty percent of the is- emissions that we are achieving right now come from buying and consuming stuff. So we need we live on a finite planet. We need to live within our planetary boundaries, and when we buy things, we need to consider what is the environmental effect of what we are buying mm-hmm. and and can we buy more sustainably can we buy smarter and i think uh, some of the um, influencers do have a role to play and there are people out there who are doing that but it's still too niche and we need to make it more mainstream what happens to us joel what makes us crave things when we're flicking through instagram and we see an influencer recommending something what's going on in our in our brains the psychology of this is fascinating first of all there's a lot of research that shows that we are more likely as consumers to purchase something if it's been recommended by someone, even if that person is a stranger. So if you're scrolling on social media, even though you might know an influencer or a person of interest personally, because they're recommending something, already you're far more inclined to actually purchase it. So that's so really if, interesting. So it doesn't matter if that person is unknown to us, as in it's not, it doesn't matter if that person is a well-known Instagram figure or media figure. That doesn't come into it. That doesn't come into it. The science says that because it's a, a human being, a person who's saying, look, I tried this and I loved it, we are already biased. We're saying, wow, this person really loves it, so we're far more interested, rather than traditional media. And that's really why influencer marketing has been so successful, because we are tapping into that personal recommendation side. And then the other side of it is the really, you know, the human dopamine hit that we get. You know, there's a lot of psychology that shows that we get this dopamine hit from things like, you know, rubbing a dog, seeing a baby smile, eating, but it also comes into consuming and shopping. The thing, though, is that we don't get the dopamine hit from actually purchasing something. We get it from like the kind of waiting to for it to arrive. And that's where online shopping really comes in because, you know, we get that hit from saying, oh God, like something is going to come in the post. And so really that's driving this constant kind of addiction and I do use that word very carefully but it is a shopping addiction that we're in right now as Mindy said this is a crisis and our cons- our, our consumption is at crisis point. So when the box arrives that's not when we're getting the hit. It's, it's the when anticipation. We're, when we mi- okay. Yeah, so, so when we buy it yeah. we're clicking on the thing and then the wait. It's the wait and it's waiting for it to come and then when it arrives actually that dopamine hit goes within a matter of hours. It's a very, very short-lived enjoyment. So it's really the, the you know, the scrolling, the anticipation, and then uh, the finally getting it, it's, it's pretty much worn off. And is there evidence that shows that this blogger culture and us wanting all the stuff that they have and ordering, that that is having an impact on the environment? Is there Absolutely. a direct link? Absolutely. I mean, look, 10% of the world's richest population, which includes people like us who are consuming, we're responsible for more than 50% of the carbon emissions in the world. So our endless consumption is really using up those essential natural resources. I love the idea of a pair of jeans because it makes it so simple. We, on average, women own about seven pairs of jeans, men own about six. We only wear probably three to four of of those pairs. A single pair of jeans uses about 3,781 litres of water just to make it. So if you think of that kind of consumption and how we're now into January and everyone's saying it's a new year, start, you know, let's refresh our wardrobes, capsule your wardrobe, all of this, like it, it really comes down to that. Like what we are consuming is having a direct impact. Mm-hmm. We mightn't think about it when we're clicking and shopping and getting that buzz, but it does have an impact and it's huge. And just going back to how we're influenced by um, the, the, the bloggers, you know, the people online, it's just fascinating because Prior to this, it, the, the big companies use celebrities 
to sell their wares. And we all know examples of, you know, the perfume and the car and the, and the clothes and so on. They don't need them anymore. They just no. use ordinary people. And it's way more effective. You know, it's it's so targeted. That's that's really why it works so well. Your feed is completely curated for you. You know, there's this kind of thing on TikTok now. I don't know if either of you are on TikTok. I'm sometimes try, I try to stay. I, I value my time. So I try to stay away. But yeah, I am, I'm on there sometimes. And it is a time drain. But there's all of these videos now. TikTok made me buy it. This is this trend where you're scrolling, people are using things and suddenly you're like, oh, actually, I'm going to buy this because of TikTok. So it is it's a it's a really prevalent thing. And I think it's just becoming more and more um, prevalent every day. It's just interesting that we can't resist. You know, we don't seem to be able to resist that power, that pull, even though logically we know these people are being paid to promote this product and sell it to us. We don't seem to make that connection a lot of the time is what you're saying. No, we don't. And it's it's worthwhile remembering that, you know, it, this is livelihood for people. And I don't want to influence or bash. I think there's a lot of positivity that can come from it. They have an amazing platform and it can be utilised for good. I'm sure you'd agree mm-hmm. with that, Mindy. Like there are people who are really using it to like promote sustainable consumption and really shine a light on the climate crisis. But unfortunately, when it's just to drive clicks and make money, it can be really, mm-hmm. really bad. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember, Mindy, don't we, that every time we click to buy something, we're sticking a van on the road to deliver it. And and a box or a packaging it's put into as well. So you have all, the, the amount of packaging has increased dramatically since uh, e-shopping, um, especially over COVID. Um, a lot of people got their hits during COVID, couldn't go shopping, so they bought lots of things online. And I think the anticipation, what you're saying, is very true. Um, I know my daughter fell suspect to this as well, and she bought a few things. And thing is, oftentimes they don't fit you. And so what do you do? You return it. And in your head, you always think, I can return it. But when you return it, oftentimes it's not put back on the shelves again. It's often destroyed or, or donated. Um, I have seen on one of the big websites that they have mystery boxes. So they take all the things that are returned, they put it in a mystery box. So you buy the mystery box not knowing what's in there. And you'll probably throw away nine-tenths of it as well. The mystery of online shopping for mystery boxes. Just one part of Chief Executive of Environmental Charity Voice, Mindy O'Brien, and Sunday Times Ireland sustainability journalist Joe Linehan's takedown of overconsumption on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, though, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.